and we're all a go. My name is not Forrest. Um, my name is Tanner, and uh, I think I've been introduced enough uh, by now. Uh, I just want to start by saying thank you guys so, so, so much. Um, if we could get a couple of these <coughs> slides up here. Um, this was yesterday. This is my sister. Um, I am the big brother, so yesterday meant a lot to me. Um, I've never seen her so happy before. Uh, and so I want to say thank you guys for that. And, and obviously we have, a, we have Zach to thank a lot for that too. It's a big part of it. But um, no, thank you guys for taking care of her, for loving her, for wrapping your arms around her. Um, thank you for doing that for my family. This has been a big year for our family. Um, thank you for praying for my mom when she battled cancer um, and for being there with her for that. Thank you for, for helping my dad as he went through a transitional time where he, he was out of work for a period of time. Um, thank you for loving up on my grandmother when she moved here and helping her to become a Christian. Um, she's never been so happy before. I have so much to be grateful for. Um, thank you guys for investing in me and loving in me. Um, loving me. Uh, whenever I get a chance to talk about the Hampton Roads Church, all I do is share how proud and honored I was to grow up in this church, to be a part of this family and to experience the things that were happening here. I'm so incredibly grateful. Um, I want to introduce you to my family real quick here. Um, this is my wife, Jenny. No, it's not Jenny. That was the Forrest Gump joke. I'm sorry. I had to explain that. Um, this is my wife, Jessica, and uh, this is actually our little cousin, Wesley. It's not, it's not our son. I just kind of wanted to throw you guys off just a little. Um, when we go on vacation, everyone thinks that he looks like what our child may look like one day, so um, maybe there will be a picture like that in, in the future. Uh, this is uh, a group of the students that we get to work with out in Chicago. We're in the western region. Um, it's called College of DuPage. It's about a 35,000 student commuter school, wow. community college, two-year school. Uh, we've got close to 40 brothers and sisters in our campus ministry right now. It is awesome. It's actually where Jeff and Kelly were before they moved here. So we kind of moved in and took their spot, and they did such a great job setting that all up. Um, so we'll jump into it here. Go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 18. Why is there a Christmas tree and an Easter bunny? There's a Christmas tree and an Easter bunny. This was our ugly sweater Christmas party. And it was a, a white elephant gift exchange. And um, someone brought an Easter bunny costume to the gift exchange. And it was the most selected gift amongst all of them. Uh, it was stolen three times and done. And that was it. So... Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 18. All right, come on, bro. Come on. Um, if you are taking notes, uh, which teens I encourage you to do, notes are not for dorks. Notes are for people that want to learn about God. Um, the title of the lesson today is Movement and Vision and Movement. All right. From the Department of Redundancy Department. But we'll get to that in just a second. Movement and Vision and Movement. I know that you guys spoke a little bit. You've been going through the book of Luke. Um, you've been reading through it, and I'm going to try and keep going here. One of the cool things about going through a gospel like Luke is you actually get to look at the way that it harmonizes with some of the other gospels. 
each one of the authors is, they're all trying to tell the same story. Maybe you've noticed that there's some discrepancies, or it seems to be that way, between what Matthew might say, and what Mark might say, and what Luke might say, and what John might say about something. And really what it is, is each one of these Gospels is this author's way of telling the story. So not only are they trying to be uh, maybe historians, so to speak, but they have an agenda about Jesus that they are trying to present themselves, which sometimes lends to why passages read slightly different. Uh, they have their own construction and composition of the gospel. Um, when you get to look through it, it's cool because you can see patterns developing, and maybe you've seen that throughout Luke as you're reading through it. You start to see reoccurring themes. Patterns are awesome. Patterns help us to understand principles and bigger things that are going on. Now, something that's really awesome is when you find a pattern that occurs throughout all of those Gospels, then you're really hitting on something that's big. You're hitting on something that, wow, this must have been so important that each one of these people wanted to say it that way. Understanding patterns and principles is a huge part to staying faithful and and learning about God. Um, Have any of you guys seen the movie Moneyball? Yeah. The baseball movie. So Moneyball is it's about this idea in baseball called sabermetrics. And what sabermetrics, it's a, it's a science, it's an art, it's advanced analytics of baseball statistics. Now, if you've ever watched a baseball game, you're going to have so much trouble trying to understand what is the, the batting average and the on-base percentage and the slugging percentage and all these different things. They all mean something when you understand it, but sometimes it's hard to understand it. Uh, Kevin Euclid was a great baseball player. Uh, he still plays. I'm not sure actually where he's at right now, but in the early 2000s, he played for the Red Sox. And he was a great batter, but there kept being these inconsistencies in his play, where he was batting great, and then all of a sudden there would be this slump, and nobody could understand it. So they got some of these scientists together to, to analyze some of his statistics, to try to find the pattern of what was going wrong so they could fix it, to understand the principle what they found is he would bat great on home games, great on away games, night games, day games. It was fine. The only hole they found is when they dug deep down and they found that on double headers when they were at home, and it was a day game following a night game. That's when his slump was. Now you're thinking, that's incredibly specific. Like, who in the world finds that? People find it. And so what this guy did is he went to the the manager and he said, hey, I don't know what's going on in his personal life, but he needs to get it together because it's impacting our team. And they found out he had a pretty rough personal life, some stuff going on with his girlfriend that lived in that area. And once that got sorted out, his batting average skyrocketed. That's what happens when we can kind of dig down and understand some of these patterns, some of these principles that go over and over and over and over again. Now today we're going to try and unpack this text in Luke chapter 18 uh, as quickly as we can. So let's jump in. I'm going to recap starting in verse 31. I believe that's what you guys read for midweek this past week. But it says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. 
When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Amen. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, these synoptic gospels, they all share this common source. One of the cool patterns that you find is this blind man is healed almost immediately after Jesus predicts his death the third time in each one of the gospels. There's something important about what's going on here, about Jesus unveiling who he is to a crowd of people. He's making his way into Jerusalem. He's probably got about two weeks left of his life here. His ministry was, was radial at first. He was in these outskirting areas. And, and now all of a sudden he's like, you know what? It's time. I'm headed towards Jerusalem. Right. I'm going right to the center. I'm going to show people who I am. I've, I've unveiled myself. I'm making this this passion prediction for the third time, and then immediately he runs into this man. Um, it's pretty incredible how Jesus wanted to set it up that way. You know, this, this spot in Jericho here, if you read in some of the other Gospels, one time says he's leaving Jericho, another time says he's going to. Uh, it's likely that there were two Jerichos. There was an old one and there was a new one. And so he's right in between the two of them on his way. Perfect place for this beggar to be hanging out. Because people would have made this trip a couple times a year, going into Jerusalem for these festivals. So Jesus knew that this was his chance to begin to show people who it was. He couldn't stay on the outskirts anymore. People had to know who Jesus was. He had to make some wakes. He had to rock the boat. He had to move. Because as we can tell, people didn't still get who he was. It says there... In verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. All throughout the Gospels, you see people running up and saying, Jesus, good teacher, rabbi. They call him these things, but they don't quite understand all of Jesus. They're there, but in part. I think that's kind of like us. We know Jesus in part. But it's not until we run and fall down before the cross that we really understand who Jesus is. Jesus is more than a good teacher. He's more than a rabbi. He's more than a healer. He's the one that was going to be the suffering servant to die for us. And until we are face to face with Jesus on our knees at the foot of the cross, we are not going to grasp who he is. Until we have clawed our way onto the mercy seat and we've clung onto the horns of the altar and we say, have mercy on me. We don't understand who Jesus is. Our understanding of Jesus is directly tied into our kinetics. Vision and clarity are always bookended by movement. This clarity comes because someone first moved. This clarity leads to movement later on. We see in order to move. We move in order to see. William Gibson is a Canadian author. Um, He coined the phrase cyberspace 
long before Al Gore invented the internet. He was the one that kind of thought of this idea in his novels. And how fitting of a quote is this? We see in order to move, we move in order to see. None of these things are stationary. Point number one, move to see. All right. Our clarity and understanding of Jesus is both limited and enhanced by the way that we move towards Jesus. And this is clear all throughout the Gospels. Jesus' first words, depending on which Gospel you look at, are come follow me or repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Both of these are kinetic. They involve motion. Jesus himself is found as a young boy lost from his family because he's moving to stay in the temple where God is. Peter fell at his knees when he was called in Luke at the miraculous catch. He moved and fell down before Jesus. The friends who brought their their paralyzed friend on the mat, they didn't stop when they got to the crowd, when the crowd was in the way. They made a hole in the roof and lowered it to Jesus. The centurion, whose servant was dying, sent his messengers to Jesus. Come on, good point. John's disciples were trying to figure out, who is this Jesus? We're following John, but we've heard about this Jesus. What's going on? They go to Jesus to figure it out. The men who were healed of leprosy went to Jesus. The rich young man runs and falls at the feet of Jesus to ask a question. The sinful woman bursts into a dinner party she's not invited to and cries all over his feet, wipes it with her hair because she's running to Jesus. The little children can't help but be right there in front of Jesus. Zacchaeus, short guy like me, climbs a tree so he can get a better view of Jesus. You can almost divide every interaction with Jesus between two points. Those who go to Jesus and those who wait for Jesus to come to them. Which one are you? If you were in the Gospels, would you be running without shame, without any sort of pride or inhibitions to Jesus? Or would you be like the Pharisees who often laid in wait for Jesus? Who often said, impress me. Let me see your magic tricks. Maybe I'll believe. They made Jesus come to him. The other option is you could be the crowd. You could be the crowd who's there with Jesus, but maybe not face to face with him. You know, that's what is beautiful in this passage is it sets up this interaction between the crowd who was right there journeying with Jesus. We think about that. That sounds great. That sounds like discipleship, doesn't it? We're right there walking along the road with Jesus. But then there's this blind man who's never seen Jesus. And all of a sudden, he gets it way better than the people who were supposedly following him. This blind beggar, right in the middle, he screams, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you keep your finger there and look look back over in Luke chapter 1. So this is when God... God sends the angel Gabriel to go and tell Mary about the son that she's about to have. And it says here in verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. It's amazing. This blind man who's never met Jesus 
speaks and honors the very words that were prophesied about him earlier on in Luke. Because he got it. He understood who Jesus was. No one up until this point in Luke has called Jesus son of David. They've said great things. Great teacher. Rabbi. Teach us these things. Heal us. But they've missed out on the son of David. Something very similar happens in the book of Mark. The book of Mark, the opening sentence says Jesus is the son of God. And all throughout the book of Mark, people aren't getting it. In fact, only the demons get that he's the son of God. Now, at one point, Peter gets this miraculous thing where he's like, yes, you are the Christ. And Jesus is like, amen, someone finally got it. And then the next verse, Peter rebukes Jesus. And you're like, no, he doesn't quite get it. Right. Ah, almost. So close, Peter. That's kind of what happens. And then at the very end, when Jesus is at the cross and the curtain is torn into, the centurion, who was a Gentile, who didn't even know God, goes, surely he is the son of God. Amen. That's what happens when we run to Jesus. Not just sit there and passively wait for him. This may be the most appropriate and comprehensive address of Jesus that anyone has said up until this point. And the ironic part is it comes from a blind man who's never seen him. He had no clue. Later on in the next passage, which I guess you guys will preach soon about Zacchaeus, um, Jesus kind of gives out his mission statement. He says at the very end of it, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. The people who were following Jesus didn't know his mission statement. The man who wanted to know Jesus, they shut him up. The very man that probably best exemplified what Jesus was all about. The crowd said, shh, 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 be quiet, shut up. Don't ruin this moment right here. What's our excuse? What's our excuse for not running and falling at Jesus' feet? Because he shouted all the louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. No one's going to hold me down. I'm going to Jesus. Get out of my way. Are you running to Jesus? Are you getting face to face with Jesus or are you just alongside for the ride? You know, there was an experiment done where they took a room about this size and they put two chairs in it on opposite sides of the room and they had two people go in and sit. They would either do two men or two women. They had no clue what the experiment was about. They just went in there to sit. And something interesting happened every single time. After about two hours, they found the men up against the wall, the chairs side by side, talking to each other but not looking at each other. Every single time. But when you did the experiment with women, two hours later, the chairs were face to face and they were often holding each other's hands as they looked into each other's eyes. I think, brothers, we have a lot we can learn from the sisters here. In terms of what it means to run to Jesus. There's a difference between being alongside Jesus and being face to face with him. This challenges me. I love to read. I love to learn and learn all the background and the history and those really cool little nuggets that you can find. Commentary doesn't get you into heaven. Being face to face with Jesus gets you into heaven. I remember one time when I was at the camp in Philadelphia and... I, I would have my quiet times in the morning. I would take out my Bible, check, my notebook, check, cup of coffee, check, solid desk. I'm good. Oh, wait, spiritual book. Okay. The complete quiet time right here. 
And I got so much security from having all of those things set up. And at one point, Jameson Malcolm came up to me and he challenged me. He said, bro, how would you feel if I told you for the next three days to just go pray with Jesus and to not get your security from all of those things? And I was like, oh, gosh. (laughs) What about scripture? He's like, you know scripture, don't you? Can you quote something? I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, there you go. That conversation changed my mind about the way that I can run at Jesus. If you've ever taken physics or any sort of science, acceleration is the change in speed, or it could also be the change in direction. A lot of times we think we have to run harder and harder and harder to get closer to Jesus. Maybe we just need to change our direction to get closer to Jesus. What does acceleration look like for us? What does that change in direction look like? Maybe it's having deep and personal prayer times with God. Not that God is great, God is good, but Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me types of prayers. What about fasting? What about something that pushes you out of your comfort zone so that you have to sit there face to face with Jesus? What about confession? What about dealing with your sin, being open about it, kneeling at the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus, I just need your help. I cannot do this on my own. We've got to move towards Jesus, not nearby, not alongside, not around or any other preposition you can think of. Right to Jesus. Get in his face if you have to. I'm sure he won't mind. We have to move to see. Point number two, see to move. When you get down to the end there, Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. What's incredible is when you read this passage in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three gospels that share a common source, all of them mention that this blind man turned and followed Jesus. Every single one of the gospels mentions that. Why is that important? Because I think that should be our natural response to understanding Jesus. He didn't have to be told. He didn't have to have a trial period of following him before he committed in steps slightly one over the next. He just saw Jesus and he got on board with what was going on here. Discipleship always, always, always follows lordship. You may think you know who Jesus is and just choose not to follow him. Like, I know, I get it. Yeah, he's the son of God, good teacher, rabbi. I'll even throw out the son of David thing, you know, make sure I know. But I'm not committed to him. You know, like, I've got my own ways of doing it. If that's the way you think, you clearly do not know Jesus. You may think you do. You are in the dark, my friend. Jesus' third passion prediction. That's what it was all about. Do you understand he's dying for your sins? When you understand that and you run to him, there is no other option but to turn and follow him afterwards. Knowing Jesus, we see to move. Once we understand we have to move, that's the only thing. You know, if any of you guys have ever done track and field, uh, you know what the high jump is here. Um, I'm not very good at it. I already mentioned I'm pretty short, so that doesn't help very much. Um, But if you look at the history of the high jump, something very interesting happened. And it was the increments 
were not very great. You know, it would increase a little bit every so often. You know, nothing really spectacular. It kind of became this dull, a little bit of a mundane sport for a while. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden in 1968, something changed. Because a man named Dick Forsberry won the gold medal at the Olympics that year. And something happened because he started experimenting with the technique in 1965 that changed everything. And he started going over backwards. And when he went over backwards, everything about that sport changed. Shattered the way that people thought about doing this. Now you might think, why didn't someone think of that sooner? Well, there's another big thing that happened. And they started to put mats on the other side of the floor. <laughs> you can love your sport and be sold out, but I'm not jumping over a six-foot pole and, and landing on my back time after time again. It used to be sand pits, and then they put these big mats in there. But that thing changed the way this sport was. It changed the way people were able to throw themselves out there. That's what the cross should do for us. When we understand who Jesus is, and we understand that grace, and that freedom, and that love of the cross, you should be willing to throw yourself over backwards for Jesus, because you know he's going to be there to catch you. Why play it safe anymore? Why have the trial period of discipleship where you're halfway in, halfway out? Go for it. Jump over it. Knowing Jesus in clarity, it's, it's not an intellectual ascent for us. It's not about all the Bible trivia questions you can answer. It's not about how smart or how many degrees you have or how many scriptures you can quote. You can have all of that. You can see as clearly as anyone else and choose not to follow Jesus. And you've missed who Jesus was. Discipleship should be a natural reaction to the cross. That's why they mention here, when he received his sight, he turned and followed Jesus. There was no prompting. There was no, he didn't even need an accountability. He just knew, if this is who Jesus is, I am following this man. The most powerful human being on earth gave up his power to die for you. Why would you not want to follow that person? 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 14, it says, For Christ's love compels us. Maybe your translation says it controls us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. When you understand the cross, when you see clearly, when that vision is given to you and you understand who Jesus is, it says you should no longer live for yourself. You're being controlled by God's love. You move forward. You see and you move. You know, when is the last time you were moved to tears? And when is the last time those tears moved you to do something because of it? You know, I was moved to tears yesterday. I saw my sister walk down the aisle. and um, I don't cry very often, but anytime my dad does, I lose it, like, immediately. Um, and I think he got most of that out of the way before they walked through the doors. But I was standing next to my brother, and, and we're like... And he looks at me, he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm, I'm holding it together, you know? And we just, we kind of lost it for a second. Because we understood what was going on yesterday. It was a beautiful moment. We understood, I think spiritually speaking, when's the last time you were moved because of something you saw? Maybe it's in Jesus. Maybe it's in your character. I remember the time when I was in college, I, I met up with um, the sister that I was co-leading a Bible talk with. And, and we sat down to kind of talk about the Bible talk and what our plans were and 
when people were going to go reach out, what activities we could do. And, and we were talking, and I don't know how it came up. We had a really good relationship. She was a little bold anyways, but we had a good relationship nonetheless. And she said, hey, you know, I wanted to share. Is it okay if I share something? I was like, sure. Yeah, what's up? Cool. Share something. <laughs> She's like, you know, you have this way about yourself where you, you kind of carry yourself as if you're better than other people. It's, it's really self-righteous, you know? Like, how often do you reach out to others for help? Or do you feel like you've got all the right answers? And I just remember thinking, like, ouch. But she is so right. I was so self-righteous. And it was exposed. From that moment on, I saw myself clearly. But the, the option is see clearly and do nothing or see clearly and change and do something. Good point. I've made it my goal to go and find what are everyone's strengths? How do I, what are things that they do well that I am awful at? What can I learn from every person that God puts me in front of? That's how we should be when we see things clearly, when we see things with Jesus. Do you know who Jesus is? Good. Do you know that he's the son of God? That's awesome. What are you doing about it? I'm not going to go do that radical stuff, that rah-rah evangelism, you know? I'm just going to keep learning. I'm going to really kind of meditate a lot, you know, I think that's my gift, the gift of boundaries, you know, (laughs) really kind of help people, you don't understand Jesus, you move to see, and then when you see, you get back out, and you keep moving, I used to, I used to try and go out on campus to share my faith, and I was a really timid person, I would get out and mustered up, and I'm gonna go share, I'm gonna go share about Jesus, and Okay, and I start out and I go, well, you know what? Maybe I should say a quick little prayer first, you know. Make sure the Spirit's here with me and I'm really God-focused. And so I would say this prayer and as I was praying, you know, I, well, you know, I should pray about that too, you know. And so I would pray a little bit longer and kind of looking at, well, you know, I still got time to share my faith. And I'm sitting there and, and all of a sudden, oh, man, I remember that brother. Yeah, I should call him and ask him about that. So, yeah, I've got some time and, you know, take out. And what it was is my heart was just, I didn't want to go share my faith. I hid behind other things, other good things. And none of those things are bad. I'm not saying don't go do those things, but I hid behind it. I saw, but I didn't move afterwards. We all have run-ins with Jesus. Every single person in the gospel, every single one of us, maybe today is your first run-in with Jesus. Can you imagine what the life of this blind man looks like after this story? Just if you think about it. He's probably never seen in years. All of a sudden, he's healed, and he follows this man he's never met. He doesn't go back to see his family that he probably hasn't seen in years. He doesn't go back to do his yard work or that honeydew project that he hasn't been able to do for a couple years. He doesn't go back to get a steady job and get out of his beggar status. He chooses to follow this nomadic person that's speaking the words of Jesus that says, Oh, by the way, I'm about to die here too, and that might happen for you guys too. That doesn't faze him at all. He saw Jesus and he moved towards him even further. The cycle keeps going. What did it look like for Peter when he saw, when he understood? The woman at the well, what did it look like for her? The simple woman that cried at Jesus' feet, what did it look like for her when she saw and things changed? What about Legion, the demon-possessed man who was all of a sudden close in in his right mind? Jesus says, no, you go over here. You don't come with me. You're going to go out. You're going to be sent to this place. What about the blind man at Bethsaida, the other blind man in Mark who had never seen before? Jesus tells him, don't go back into that village. Go out over there. What about Barabbas, 
the man who was supposed to die on the cross. And all of a sudden, Jesus takes his place, and he has this ability to finally understand who Jesus is. The Bible doesn't say what happens to him. It also doesn't promise what's going to happen to us either. That's your decision. What are you going to do now that you understand Jesus? Are you going to be like this blind man, or are you going to be like the crowd? We all have run-ins with Jesus. Now, if you're studying the Bible, keep going. Keep understanding who Jesus is. Is it going to be hard sometimes? Yeah. Is it going to be scary? Absolutely. Is it worth it? You bet it is. Keep following Jesus. Maybe this is your first time at church. You're thinking, what does it mean to go now? Turn to the person who invited you. Ask them to study the Bible. Ask them to teach you more about who this man is. This man that commands people to follow them when they've never met him. Maybe you've been a disciple for a while. Maybe you already see. Maybe you've forgotten what it looks like to see clearly. Get back to the basics. Run straight to Jesus. Get off the periphery. Be moved. Do something. You know, Jesus looked at the crowd when he heard the man. And instead of going over to the man, he tells the people in the crowd, go get him and bring him to me. When's the last time you went away from the crowd to pull someone back into that family? I think that's Jesus' mission for every one of us who are following him, to go and make disciples of all nations. Our understanding of Jesus is bookended with movement. We have a kinetic faith. It's not passive. It's not intellectual Christianity. We are followers. We are disciples of Jesus. We are spurred by our understanding and his love and grace. We move to see, and then we see to move. Amen. Amen.